Let me open us with prayer. Lord, would you use this story to honor yourself, that your grace and glory might be seen, and to build us up so that we might see how we might live in light of who you are. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we began to examine the story of the healing of Naaman in 2 Kings 5, and we noted three crucial contrasts. First, the story shows God's providence in the telescopic and the microscopic events of life, we said. Thus, we should plan diligently and strive hard, but also realize our efforts will come to pass only as the Lord wills. Thus, our determination and grit are important, but ultimately, God determines the future. Second, we saw the beautiful love of this captured and enslaved little girl who sought to help her enslaver find healing. She knew God's providence doesn't mean that he immediately makes all things better. Thus, she didn't grow bitter due to her enslavement. Instead, she sought to use it to be a blessing even to her enemies. Third, the story shows God's desire to include and save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In contrast, we looked at examples in Scripture where God's people wanted to exclude others due to their nationality or race. Even in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, they loved him until he was telling them of his plan to reach out to foreigners like Naaman. Then, upon hearing that, they were filled with rage and sought to kill him. As we continue to mine this rich passage, we find four other crucial contrasts today. If you have a bulletin, these should be on the back. First, humility versus pride. Then monotheism versus polytheism. Third, contentment versus covetousness. And then lastly, receiving versus earning. But first, this story shows us the contrast of humility versus pride. And the story really highlights for us how pride can be so utterly destructive and harmful in our life. To understand this, we have to remember first that pride is not always a negative term. If someone says, I take pride in my construction, or in their child, or in their country, that's not necessarily bad. All of those things, yes, they can become idolatrous, but there's nothing wrong with working hard and feeling a sense of accomplishment in what you've done. As well, we can wrongly misunderstand pride if we think humility is going around saying how worthless we are and we can't do anything. Pride is essentially just focusing on one's self. And thus pride can be seen in boasting about ourselves or in beating ourselves up. Pride basically carries an over-elevated sense of one's importance in relation to ourselves, in relation to others. Thus, Humility doesn't mean I demean my role if God has given me an important role, or that I demean my skills if God has actually blessed me in some way. Rather, humility just <clears throat> rightly understands those in relation to God. The height of humility is aptly described by John Oswalt, who says, This is true humility, self-forgetfulness. It is the ability to go about the task God has given, secure in His love and His valuing, without wondering if others will appreciate us as much as they should. It is the ability to see others being praised and not need to belittle them. 
either silently or aloud, in an effort to make oneself look good by comparison. Well, in this story, Naaman exemplifies the exact opposite of such a humble mindset. Notice Naaman's response in verses 11 and 12 to Elisha's messenger and message. Verse 11, But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand to call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over this place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in his rage and left. Now Naaman's anger exists because he doesn't receive the treatment that he thinks he deserves. In the English language, if we want to highlight something, we may use a highlighter. We may underline it. We may bold it. We may italicize it. Well, in Hebrew, one of the ways they emphasize something is sometimes where they place it in the sentence. And here, the way Naaman says this, the emphasis on to me. He would treat me this way? Doesn't he know how important I am? Doesn't he know what I have a big deal I am? And this is probably one of the reasons why Elisha sent a servant to give instructions rather than going out himself. Elisha knew that Naaman's leprosy was only skin deep, but he had a much deeper issue that went all the way to his heart, his pride. Naaman's pride was so great that he had imagined how someone great like him would be healed. It would be something dramatic, waving of the hands, strong words, so everyone could see. And yet, none of that is said. Rather, this humbling task of going to a dirty river and washing in it seven times. And so in his pride, Naaman almost left. But his servants lead him to humility. You know, they respectfully ask, well, isn't this actually a great word? You can be healed of your leprosy. Won't you just go and try it? There could be the harm in trying. Well, Naaman then does humble himself to this lowly task from his lowly servants, and he's healed. Naaman's pride almost kept him from healing, but humility brought him God's deliverance. We then see the miracle that Naaman was healed, not just of his skin issue, but also his heart issue. We see this because when he returns, he confesses God alone. Look at verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God, and he and all his company, and he came and he stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Not only that, there's a subtle contrast in verse 11, he's upset that Elisha doesn't come and stand before him. You know, all of you, you must stand before me. But now, he goes and he stands before Elisha. And if you count, as I did, in verses 15 through 18, five times he refers to himself as your servant. Naaman has been given the gift of seeing himself as a servant. Now you might be thinking, whoa, 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 pastor. Isn't that a sign of Naaman not doing well? Isn't that low self-esteem, seeing yourself as a servant? Shouldn't we realize we're God's sons and daughters? On one amazing level, yes, we have been adopted into God's family. Yet we must also remember Jesus' words in Luke 17.10. So you also, Jesus says, 
When you've done all that you're commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We only have done what was our duty. You know, we think greatness is in having the right position, prestige, possessions. You know, being the boss, not the servant. Yet listen to Jesus' words in Mark 9, 33-37. Jesus asked them, the disciples, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. God has given Naaman the greatest gift possible, not the healing of leprosy, the gift of realizing that he gets to be a servant, the gift of humility, the gift of self-forgetfulness. And that same pride that almost kept Naaman from physical and spiritual healing is still tempts us today. And that's why, because God loves us, he has such strong words about pride. 1 Peter 5, 6, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. If God opposes the proud because our pride seeks to rob him of his glory. But the only person we end up robbing is ourselves because our pride hurts us. Humility is the opposite of pride because it gets our eyes off of ourselves and it gets them onto others and onto God. Pride focuses on who is serving me. Humility focuses on who am I serving? Am I serving the Lord? Am I serving others? Yet pride, it's very subtle. And it often hides and masks itself in subtle ways. Stuart Scott has written an excellent little book called From Pride to Humility. And in that, he gives several descriptions. But let me share ten <coughs> subtle ways that we can see our pride. First, a lack of gratitude. For a proud person thinks they deserve what they get. A proud person is second quick to anger. For a proud person has rights that they're owed because of who they are. Third, a proud person has an inflated view of their own importance, their gifts, their abilities. Fourth, proud people are focused on the lack of their gifts and abilities. And this is really the subtle nature of pride because we often associate Pride with those people who are always going around telling how great they are, all the stuff they had. But prideful people also go around, oh, I don't have anything. Oh, I don't have any talents. I'm worthless. Why is that pride? Because pride is a focus on me. It doesn't matter if you have all the talents or you have no talents because you're not made for yourself. You're made for God. And humility gets your eyes off of yourself and onto God. Another subtle way of pride is perfectionism. This is often done to be recognized as being perfect. Pride can be seen in our talking too much. For everyone has to hear my opinions and my thoughts because they are so darn important. Pride is being consumed with what others think of you. Pride is being unteachable because 
what could you teach me? I, I know it already. I mean, <coughs> humble people say, I, I think I know it, but why don't you tell me again? I, I might have missed something before. Pride lacks compassion, but often is sarcastic and hurtful. Proud people look down on others, and they look over at others. And lastly, pride is found in blame shifting and rarely asking forgiveness. For proud people don't do much wrong. They're just misunderstood. And in reading that list, I say, God, have mercy on me. You know, how many of those describe us? And may God give us the gift that he gave Naaman of humility to get our eyes off ourselves and on serving others. You know, humility opens us up to know that truth. And part of the humility that came to Naaman was that he could see the truth of monotheism versus polytheism. Our second point, what we see from this passage. Theism is the Greek word from theos, which means God, and mono means one, where poly means many. Thus, monotheism theism means one God, and polytheism refers to many gods. Well, we already read verse 15 where Naaman says, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Yet, Israel, the very nation that should have known that monotheism is true, there is only one God, they were constantly tempted to add to their worship of God the worship of Baal, the worship of Asherah, and the worship of the gods and the nations that surrounded them. Even today, we find many, even professing Christians, calling us to be open to people knowing God by other names, connecting to the divine in different ways. They've not rejected Christianity, or so they say. They're just adding, supplementing, and adjusting, benefiting from the wisdom that's given to these other people, so they claim. Yet in contrast to that is God's first and second commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We hear that last part, that God is jealous. And we may think of insecure teenagers who get angry when their significant other just says hi to someone of the opposite sex. Yet while jealousy in humans is often wrong and selfish, it's not that way with God. In about a month, we're going to have the Winter Olympics, and I love the Olympics, I don't know about you, but imagine if we're watching and someone does something great for the United States, and they win gold, and they go to the podium, and right before they're going to raise the flag, they say, you know, I really love China. Could we put the Chinese flag up and play their national anthem? Well, our news media and we U.S. citizens would rightly be angry. We would be jealous for our nation and we would say, no, you're from the United States. We want to hear our anthem. We want to see our flag raised. You know, God's jealousy is much greater than that, though, because his jealousy is in no way selfish. It's for our good. You know, God knows if we love, if we seek after any other God, it will not bring us lasting hope. It won't bring us lasting joy and peace. And so him being jealous that we love him alone is for our good. 
He knows as soon as we forsake any other God, we are hurting ourselves. Jesus himself clearly said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say I'm a way, a truth, and a life. And then he adds to make it clear, no one comes to the Father except through me. There could be no clearer statement of monotheism. The disciples reiterated this in Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now I know living in our culture and working in the workplace, this is uncomfortable teaching. We're told to be open-minded, to be tolerant, which in the right context can be a good thing. Yet there are times when you should not be open-minded. If you get on a plane and the person who sits next to the emergency exit reaches to open it during the flight and you go, whoa, and he goes, I really think I'm going to have a better flight if I open the door. That is not a good time to be open-minded. That is a good time to be closed fist and no, we're not opening that door. I'm not open-minded to that idea. It's a horrible one. There are some things that you should say, I'm not open to a different perspective on this. That is wrong. And when it comes to God, it is wrong. We should not be open-minded to different ways of thinking about Him. And sometimes we just forget life in general. Are you open to people loving you and thinking about you however they want? You know, if someone said to you, you know, when I think of you, I think of a drunken sailor. Would you go, hey, there's many perspectives on me. Sure. If you want to think of me that way, then fine. That's okay. If you have a relative who's a vegetarian and you go to their house and you give them a nice fat T-bone, are they going to go, thank you for loving me how you want to love me? No. They're going to be insulted. They're going to say, I've told you I find that offensive and you're going to bring that to me? So if we as humans don't want people to think of us in a wrong way, and we don't want them to love us however they want to be loved, why would we then think that the God of the universe is open to, well, just love me however you want. Think of me however you find thinking of me beneficial. Well, that is ludicrous, especially when he has clearly shown us how he should be understood and how we should approach him. This really isn't a hard concept, but throughout time, people have found it challenging to come to God through the cross of Christ alone, by faith alone. Even the verses I read this morning, the early church, 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand sign and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
You know, this really gets us back to our first point, that of humility. Are we going to approach God in the way that we think He should be, or are we going to approach God in the way that He has revealed Himself to be? Now, surely Naaman, with his wealth, with his influence, he'd probably tried numerous ways to get healed. But he came to find out there was only one way. And like the Greeks and Jews in Paul's day, Naaman at first found washing in the Jordan to be a completely silly idea. Raymond Dillard writes, Wash in the Jordan and be cured of leprosy? What a preposterous idea. I can't think of anything more ridiculous. Well, maybe one thing is more ridiculous. The idea that putting your trust and faith in a man executed on a cross almost 2,000 years ago can give you a renewed life now. Forgiveness from sin, a resurrection from the dead, and eternal life. Now that beats all. God, prom- God's promises always require faith. They always look foolish, improbable, unbelievable, unlikely, impossible. But God's seemingly foolish commands, when they are believed and obeyed, become the power of God for Naaman and for us. Now I know some of you are alert readers, and you're going, well, hold on, Pastor. Verse 18. What's that all about? Because Naaman says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to bow before the god Ramon. That's worshiping another god. What is going on? And we should add that Elisha even says, well, you can go in peace, seeming to imply, though it's not that strongly stated, that this will be fine. Well, let's note what we do know and what we don't know about what's going on here. First, we don't know why Naaman is going to be bowing. Is he going to be bowing because the king is old and he's going to help the king in? And when the king bows as a servant, he has to bow with him. It's an act of being a servant. Or is he bowing because he is still wanting to worship this other god? Or is he bowing because he just doesn't want to dishonor or disobey his king? We are not really told at all. Second, while we don't know why Naaman bows, we do know that Naaman knows this is wrong. At the very least, that it could give a very wrong impression that needs forgiveness. The point is, there's no point in Naaman asking forgiveness if he's not doing something that has at least the appearance, if not the full action, of being wrong. Thus, those verses in no way are opening up the possibility of worshiping other gods as though God is fine with this. Your Naaman has some unique situation that I don't fully understand, and even that is seen to be wrong and needing forgiveness. Really, I think Naaman is painting a stark contrast between the Israelites. Naaman, who just was converted, has the sensitivity that even the appearance of worship could offend God. Would he forgive me? Whereas the Israelites are making full-out idols and not concerned at all to disobey God in that way. You know, they are fine with blatant idolatry while Naaman is sensitive to even the perception of idolatry. Now, I'm sure most of you are not tempted to go out to some temple and buy an idol and put it in your house and bow down to it. But we might be tempted to the idolatry that Paul warns of in Colossians 3.5, covetousness. And that's the third point, contentment versus covetousness. 
And covetousness can be a little bit hard to define because the opposite of covetousness is not that you don't have desires. If you've ever read about Buddhism or Eastern religions, they think you've reached enlightenment when you can stop desiring. Well, that's not what the Bible says at all. Psalm 37, 4 calls us to delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, of course, not materialistic desires because God will rework us so that our desires are for what honors Him. Not only that, though, Proverbs praises industrious people who are desiring. Jesus desired food and drink and fellowship. Thus, coveting is not having desires. It's having insatiable desires. You often desires that says, if I can only have this one more, I'll be satisfied. Sometimes covetousness is better seen than defined. You may have heard of John D. Rockefeller. He was the first billionaire, and he was the richest man alive in the late 1800s. And when he was asked by a reporter, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? He responded, just a little more. And here we see Gehazi having greed and that covetousness. He sees all the wealth of Naaman and he wants some of it. It's always hard when we're comparing ancient cultures to today to get the exact equivalent. But if you take the gold and silver that we're told Naaman brought and give it to a modern day equivalent, it's probably worth over three and a half million dollars. As well, these 10 chains of clothes, they're not something you would go and find on the rack at any department store. These are the clothes that royalty would wear. And Gehazi wants them. We see this in verse 20. There it says, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian, and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. Gehazi's coveting, his idolatry, sadly illustrates how once we forsake God as our greatest delight, our lives will then overflow with all the other types of sins to reach what our heart really loves. Because Gehazi, what does he now do? He takes the Lord's name in vain. As the Lord lives, I'm going to get this. Well, the Lord doesn't have anything to do with this, but he's swearing on God's name. Gehazi will then lie to Naaman. He'll lie to Elisha to get what he desires. Your heart, meaning your deepest loves and desires, is the rudder of your life. And whatever your heart truly loves, whatever says, I must have this, that will then lead you in your actions. You may have heard of a poll asking what people would do for $10 million. 3% would put their children up for adoption. 7% would kill a stranger. 10% would would hold testimony and let a murderer go free. 16% would leave their spouses. 25% would abandon their entire family. And 25% would leave their faith. The love of money, says Paul, is the root of all kinds of evil. Again there, it's the love of money. It's the covetousness. But did you notice Gehazi's pious twist to his lie? This is for the prophets. Oh, Naaman, this is a good thing you're going to do. You're going to help serve God by giving this for the prophets. You Naaman thinks he's doing something for God, and yet really Gehazi is just using God's name 
to get what he wants. And sadly, throughout Scripture and life, we see people using God, using the Scriptures to bless themselves, to twist it for their selfish desires. In Acts 8, there's a man named Simon who wants to buy the gift of the Spirit so that he can earn from it. He's fine to use the Holy Spirit to make money. In 1 Peter 5, God gives several exhortations and warnings to church leaders. And part of that says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter later warns of false teachers in 2 Peter 2.3, where he warns, In their greed, they will exploit you, exploit you sorry, with false words. And these aren't just warnings for New Testament times. Even today, people will use God's word for their own selfish ends. I have a friend who worked at a bank as a loan officer, and one church came in to get a loan. And as he was talking to them, he asked the pastor, Well, what will you do if there's a recession? And the pastor replied, I've learned what to say to get the people to give money. The pastor's car was worth more than 100000 because... To serve the rich, you have to understand what they're going through. He had a generous salary, plus 10% of the church's giving went straight to his own discretionary fund. (coughs) You may remember back in 2015 when a televangelist asked people to give him, I'm sorry, God, a $65 million plane. You know, these blatant, greedy grabs tragically lead many people to dismiss everything that the Bible says. Oh, it's just another power grab. It's just another way to manipulate people with religion. Use them so those people in charge can get what they want. In contrast to that is Elisha, who's content with what God gave him. We've already stated that Naaman brought more than $3 million worth of gifts, but Elisha won't take a dime, a shekel, or a sandal. And yet aren't we all tempted If I just have a little more, maybe it's a little more respect, a little more peace and quiet, a little more income, a little more savings, just a little bit more, then life will be perfect. Yet Jesus warns in Luke 12, 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So what's the antidote? What's the cure for our covetous hearts? Contentment in Christ. That's why Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, what do we fear losing? We fear losing what we love the most, what we think gives us life. So we fear losing relationships. Possessions, our beauty, our power. And yet the one thing that we can't live without, God's presence, can never be taken from us. We lost it in the garden due to our sin, but Emmanuel, God with us, has come. And by faith in Him, He is with us always, even to the end of the age. We may lose earthly presence but we will never lose God's presence again by faith in Christ. Thus, we don't need to fear because humans can't take from us what ultimately matters. You know, the problem with Gehazi's covetousness 
is not just that it was sinful and led him to sin, but also that it distorted God's character. We see that in our last contrast, receiving versus earning. And Naaman, when he came to Israel, he was full of leprosy. He was full of his own importance. And he knew how the gods worked. They demanded sacrifice. They demand payment. And once you give the gods what they want, then you can get what you want. In contrast to all the gods that he's ever known and the people probably that he's known, Elisha won't take anything at all. Now, you got to realize it's not because the money won't help. If you remember last chapter, they're out scavenging in the wilderness for gourds. If you look to the next chapter, they're going to say, we don't have big enough buildings and they're going to have to go chop down their own trees. They need money. But Elisha says, this is not a time to take it. Well, why? Because Elisha wants Naaman to know that God is one who gives graciously, not one who gives because we've bought it from him. In relation to the true God, we are always receivers. Or to use theological language, it is all of grace. We do nothing to earn God's blessings and gifts, but rather God graciously gives them to us. Yes, God did accept and even demand sacrifices in the Old Testament. And you can read in the New Testament things that talks about sacrifices we should give. Sacrifices of praise and other things like that. But the sacrifices in the Old Testament were always pointers to grace. Not payments for grace. That's why God would often say, stop the sacrifices. That's why I'd say, I don't want them. One clear example is Psalm 50, 9 through 15. It says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. The sacrifice God always wanted was a contrite heart. One that gives out of thanksgiving, out of overflowing. Israel gave sacrifices not because God needed them, but because they needed they needed to respond in praise, not in payments to God. And understanding all that really helps us understand two parts of this story. First, it explains why not, Elisha doesn't think this is the time for payment. Because we've said, Naaman is going to assume a payment is him earning God's healing. So it's not a time to dis- to cause confusion. And that really helps us also understand the harshness of God's punishment against Gehazi. Now, we only think that punishment is harsh if we forget what we deserve. The wages of sin is death, not disease. But though Gehazi deserves death, God graciously only gives him disease and time to repent. Not only was God's punishment not too harsh, but it was given in light of the crime. Gehazi risked a new convert, realizing the reality of God's grace, all so he could have more coins and clothing, both of which moth and rust will eat 
and destroy. And this story is a reminder that we must always fight against the subtle ways that we think we are putting God in our debt. Oh, I'm raising my kids this way. A lot of other Christians aren't. God owes me good children. Oh, I've been faithful to give to the church lots of money. I'm guaranteed a long life with my spouse. Oh, I've done all these things. God owes me health. God owes me, I'm a prayer warrior. God won't let me die young. We are always in God's debt. We can never do anything that then puts him in the, well, now I owe them. Yep, they're going to get the perfect spouse. Yep, they're going to get this. Due to our sin, any good gift God gives us is because his grace towards us. And consider what it would mean if we could buy or earn God's goodness to us. This would lead to pride because those who have God's goodness could say, I did it. I earned it. I was a good enough Christian. I prayed enough. I gave enough. I deserve this. On the flip side, it would lead to beating ourselves up if anything goes wrong. I screwed everything up. It's all my fault. Everything bad in my life is because of me. As well, it would take away the freedom of God. God is not bound by anything but his own character. There's no magic formula. There's no chant. There's no prayer. There's no religious deed that if you do it, God is now somehow owing you. That he has to do good for you. Yet the amazing thing is that God in his grace wants to do good for you. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless us. He wants us so much that he sent his son to live and die so that we might know perfect love, justice, mercy, goodness, and his kindness. In essence, we need to remember our calling. Because not many of us are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of us are powerful. Not many of us are in noble birth. But God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is low and despised, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Some of you may have read or watched Tolkien's Fellowship of the Rings. In there, at one point, the group is trying to get into a mine, but the mine can only be entered through a secret door that is only seen in moonlight. Well, they're there at moonlight, and they see the door, and above the door it says, Speak, friend, and enter. The leader, Gandalf, thinks it's some kind of magical password that must be given to open the door. So he starts speaking all kinds of combinations of phrases he switches the order of the words he speaks louder he speaks softer he speaks faster he speaks slower he speaks firmer he speaks gentler he tries thing after thing and after a final attempt he throws his stick against the door and sits down in frustration then the supposedly simple one in the group frodo says friend and the door opens 
What do you need to know God's healing, His wholeness, your, His blessing on your life? Like Naaman, we are to trust God's word that may seem like folly to everyone around us. But it is hope. It's not complicated, though it was costly for him. Jesus went to the cross to die for us. And by simple faith, we're forgiven, we're healed, and we're made whole. Through Jesus, we don't need to earn anything, but only receive his amazing love that allows us to say, friend, and the door opens and we're welcomed in. Let's pray. Lord, what amazing news that through your Son, you allow us to say, friend. We who were enemies, who should have been punished both now and forever, have been given a way back through your Son. Lord, may we have faith in your Word. Give us hope in what you've done through your Son. It's in His name we pray. Amen.